about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Hi everyone, I'm Nick. Uh, the second reading today is from Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. Uh, if you're following the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1193. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not... See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, One more I, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, 
Well, good evening again. Let's pray as we think about that part of God's word. Blow the wind of your spirit among us now, Heavenly Father, that we may know Jesus Christ and serve him. Amen. Uh, One of the things that is both uh, wonderful and also challenging about being a minister uh, is that I'm constantly required to kind of take things to a deeper level, or at least people expect you to do that. You know, one minute I'm talking about somebody's job or, you know, pictures of cats on Facebook, um, and does anybody else, I love doing that, pictures, is, is there anything that sums up the inanity of our world so wonderfully as the cat meme? But anyway, you know, one minute you're doing something like that, and then the next you're talking about hell and heaven and God. Now, of course, this isn't limited to being a minister. Anybody can do this. Any, especially, you know, lots of Christians I know talk about serious things. We should, of course. Uh, but people allow for it a bit more when you're, you're a minister, and they kind of expect it, and, and, and quite a lot of my time is spent trying to find ways to do it. And I love it. But sometimes it can be a bit tiring. You know, it can all be just a bit too intense. I wonder if sometimes you feel that way, maybe about faith generally, or, or about your coming to church or small groups or whatever, that it's all a bit heavy-duty, Perhaps you feel this way about listening to sermons. Not this one so far, obviously, but, uh, you know, or going to Bible study. Uh, it's all sometimes a bit too intense. Uh, that the things that are said to you are a bit overwhelming. That the things the Bible apparently says about God are all a bit much. And you'd sometimes rather keep your distance a little. In our journey through the book of Exodus, we come this evening to a profound moment at which Israel suddenly have this incredibly intense encounter with God. They come close to God, and it's scary. And I think we can learn a lot from the way that it unfolds. We can learn a lot from the way they react to it, a lot about how we relate to God today. So I'd love you to come with us. We're going to do, firstly, look at Exodus chapters 19 and 20, which on page 73, it'd be great to have a Bible open. Uh, and then we're going to think about what it means for us by, by looking at our New Testament reading from Hebrews 12. So keep a Bible with you. Let's begin by walking through this incredible moment in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Last week, we heard about Israel's journey through the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai. Uh, It was a journey full of (coughs) grumbling and failure on Israel's part and incredible gracious provision on God's. But now in chapter 19, we read that they reached their destination. Verses 1 and 2, in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. They reach Mount Sinai, which is a dramatic, large mountain towards the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And they're going to stay here for the rest of Exodus and the whole book of Leviticus right through to Numbers chapter 10. This is, in a very, in a very real sense, this is where they were headed. And they're there. 
And it's a climactic moment because this is where they as a nation will meet God for themselves. The stage is set in verses 3 to 8, which we've already read. Moses goes up to God, which seems to mean that he goes up the mountain uh, and God gives him a message to speak to the people. And it's a message that clarifies the nature of their relationship with him. Have a look at it again in verses 4 to 6. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel is to be God's special people, his treasured possession. The whole earth belongs to God, but God's intention is that Israel be special. Like, if you'll forgive another hobbit reference, like the Arkenstone amidst all the dwarves' treasure. Anybody get that illusion? What a great, what a great illustration, hey? Um, you know, they're the, they're the apple of his eye. It, God's treasured possession. Importantly, though, it's clear that God has a purpose in this that is wider than just them. They had to be a kingdom of priests. That is, those who enable the rest of the world to relate to God. The technical term for this is that they're supposed to be mediators. Uh, we see this here also with Moses going up and down the mountain. Moses is a mediator between the people and God a kind of go-between. And somehow Israel are to have this role in relation to the rest of the world. Well, this is their task. This is their relationship. And, and Moses relays this to the people and they respond with great confidence. Verse 8, We will do everything the Lord has said. Now, I think at this point, we're meant to be a little sceptical. Because, of course, their track record has not been amazing so far. And you worry that maybe they're overstating their capacities here. Nevertheless, this is what they say, and Moses takes their reply back up to God. And what now follows is an experience that will de define Israel's relationship with God from this point on. God declares that he's going to manifest himself to the people. Have a look at verse 9 there. The Lord said to Moses... I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. God is going to manifest himself such that Mo partly so that Moses will be established as the mediator. First, in order for this to happen, though, preparations have to be made, serious preparations, because as we're going to see, this is no small thing for God to come close to people. Have a look there at verses 10 to 15. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall be stoned or shot with arrows. 
not a hand to be, is to be laid on him. Do you get the sense? What's happening is that they're consecrating this ground. And so if somebody goes on, they can't touch them to kill them. They've got to throw things at them or shoot them. It's really full on. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. Verse 14, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. Uh, Now, that's a bit weird what's going on there. Uh, What's going on, I think, is that the whole people have to prepare themselves as if they were priests. As if they were kind of doing priestly preparations for priestly service. The Bible as a whole is very clear that there's nothing wrong with sex. It's a good gift of God. But the priests need to be set apart in this particular way beyond the kind of sphere of normal life. And so they have to wash their clothes in a particular way. And here Moses says, abstain from sex. The whole people, you see, is doing this priestly thing. It's like the mountain is becoming the temple, except we haven't got the temple yet. Later on we're going to fo- in Exodus, we're going to find out about the temple. And these are the kind of preparations that are appropriate for the inner room of the temple where you're not allowed to go. And it's like the whole mountain is that because God's presence is going to be so powerfully there. And then on the third day, remember that, God manifests himself. Verse 16, it's dramatic. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. (coughs) Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Can you imagine what this would have been like? There's fire and smoke covering the top of the mountain and the deafening noise. And then like thunder, a booming voice. It's the voice of God. Verse 20, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And then God reiterates these warnings. Have a look at verse 21. And the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Do you get the picture? This is dangerous. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's fearsome. Moses said to the Lord, yeah, we've done that. The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. It is not a small thing for God to draw near to people. This is a theme that we have not done with in the book of Exodus. 
and that we have certainly not done within the Bible. It is not a small thing for God to come close. And then God speaks. And what he speaks, what would you expect him to say? Well, what he in fact says are the Ten Commandments. Verse 1 of chapter 20, and God spoke all these words. Of course, they don't begin with a commandment. They begin with a, a definition of the relationship. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then there's these Ten Commandments. I don't know when the last time was that you read the Ten Commandments. They're not actually that well known by people today. Uh, I'll tell you the last time I read them before this sermon, though, was when I was at, uh, I was at Port Macquarie on holidays, and there's, an, there's a, a shop there which on the second level has a LED billboard that just scrolls past and it's got useful information like, you know, the temperature and the time and date and then the Ten Commandments scroll past. Hey, it's a, I mean, that's a bit odd. Uh, but the real problem is he's, he's kind of chosen to emphasise certain aspects of them. Uh, so he says, you know, they're mostly lowercase, but there's a thou shalt not steal. I think, oh, okay, what, what's going on there? And he's also unfortunately spelt covet as cover. Uh, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. <laughs> so it goes. Uh, you know, that's a bit weird. And of course, there are wrong ways to use the Ten Commandments today. I think Israel would have found that extremely odd. Right? But there is a reason people still read the Ten Commandments today. And the reason is these words, these ten words, are they're not just in a way that's different to the law code that's going to follow, and we're going to spend more time on all this next week, more time on the Ten Commandments as well. But they're not just a kind of ancient Near Eastern penal code. They don't actually have any penalties prescribed. And some of the commandments don't work as penal laws at all. You shall not covet. How do you enforce that? You, you can't. It's actually clear that more is going on here than a set of laws. What is happening is this is a, a moral foundation for a new community. And that's why people still read them today, because actually this was this profound expression of God's will for humanity. Yes, it's in a particular context. It's given to Israel, and that means we've got to read them and think about them, and they don't all apply exactly easily but they are worth paying attention to. They're a really interesting vantage point from which to see our world and its moral priorities. Some of them we agree with easily. Other parts you think, that's really weird. You know, there, there's really a lot in them about how you treat God. They take the Sabbath really seriously. We do well to reflect on them. We'll come back to them a bit more next week. But what, for now, just know that so what happens is, is they're at the mountain and God speaks and he speaks these profound words which are this whole kind of foundation for a, a way of being in the world as a community. But it's too much for the people of Israel. It's too intense. Have a look at what happens afterwards. Chapter 20, verse 18. 
Everybody there? When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. They can't bear it. They think they're done for. What should we make of this response? In a way, it makes sense. Uh, you know, it achieves God's stated purpose back in chapter 19, verse 9, that Moses would be established as an authority in their eyes. Yet I think it's a more ambiguous response than that. It's not quite 100% positive. Because there is something that is at least potentially a problem in the people's desire for distance here and their insistence that they're going to die. And Moses gets it. Moses sees that there is a potential problem here. See in verse 20, Moses said to the people, this is a really important sentence. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Don't be afraid. God's come to test you so that you fear him. Is that just a contradiction? Don't be afraid. Fear God. No, it's not a contradiction. It's a subtle distinction. A subtle distinction between two different types of response to this moment. You see, there's no doubt that what's going on is, in a way, fearful. It's terrifying. And yet there are two different ways of responding to that. And Moses sees that this is a, a crucial moment. On the one hand, they could respond with simple fear, terror, where the mind shuts down and all you have is emotional and physiological responses. But Moses says, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, he says, what God wants is, is for you to fear him. Not just to be afraid, to fear him and not sin. What does he mean by that? He means God's desire here is that they have a right respect for who he is. That they actually register who he is and what his words mean. God's interest is not just to terrify them out of their wits. It's to get them to appropriately recognize and respect him and his words so that it changes them, so that they learn to live differently. This is the choice the people are faced with here, between simple fearfulness in which they stop thinking and just try to get themselves out of there, and a right fear of God, in which the reality of God comes home to them powerfully and reshapes them. And Moses urges them to to do the latter in the knowledge that what is happening here is that they are being tested. That what, what, what is it to be tested? It means that God is dealing with them for their good. God is trying to do something good to them. And so Moses implores them not to just be afraid and to back away. Sure, at one level, it's fine for them to want Moses to be the mediator. In a way, that's good. 
But, but that mustn't turn into just fearful running away. They need to learn to have a deeper response to this, to come to fear God rightly so that it shapes them. Now, why is that important for us? Why, how can that help us? Well, it can help us because in a profound and important way, we today, if we believe in Jesus, are in exactly the same position as Israel. To explain this point, we need to go to our New Testament reading in Hebrews chapter 12. It's, it's on page 1193. I think that's right. Can anybody confirm? Excellent. 1193, Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 18. What this passage does is tell us that Israel's experience at the mountain is actually just a shadow of the position that Christians are in today. Now, that's, that's a weird thought, but just go with it. See where it takes us. First, the writer conjures up this moment that we've been talking about, or we've been thinking about in Exodus. You'll see how much he's referring to it. From verse 18, he's writing to Christians. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear even what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. That's not from Exodus, that's a reference to Deuteronomy, but same moment, right? But he says, oh no, that's, that's not what you've come to. Oh no, you've come to something much, much more incredible. Verse 22, but you have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, which is the Bible's way of talking about where God actually lives. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, it's an image, but that's what he's doing. Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's all a bit dense. He's writing to people who knew their Old Testaments much better than we do. That's okay. We can get his main point. What you've come to, he's saying, through faith in Jesus is something immense. Through faith in Jesus Christ, he is saying, we become witnesses to a dramatic disclosure of God. A disclosure on the, on the third day, just like at Sinai, but better. On the third day, he rose from the dead and in that moment, and in seeing that moment through faith, heaven was opened up to us. And we became participants in this moment of immense cosmic significance. Where the whole company of heaven is gathered round at the mountain of God. Of course, the writer knows we can't see this in the same way that they could back 
in Mount Sinai, but he's saying that's not really what matters. What matters is the truth of things, and the truth of things is that in Jesus Christ and through faith in him, heaven has been opened up to us. We come to a greater mountain with a greater gathering than just Israel, led by a greater mediator than Moses, Jesus, the Son of God, and we are brought there by a greater salvation than just Exodus and the Passover and the Red Sea. We're brought there by the blood of Christ that has dealt with sin and evil, not just temporarily on earth, but for all time in heaven. When you believe in Jesus Christ, he's saying, you become a witness to a divine disclosure, a divine manifestation that makes Sinai look like a moderately impressive display of, of pyrotechnics. Now, I want us to stop and get this point because it is a weird thought, but it's an important thought. You get this point that in some profound way, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you have become part of a moment quite like but far exceeding in glory this moment at Sinai. God has unveiled himself and spoken. And can I just say, if you're not a Christian, this is the reason to become a Christian. Because you get to come to the very heart of things. The very most significant moment of meeting between God and the world imaginable. And it happened in Jesus Christ when God raised him from the dead on the third day. When you, when you come to him in faith and put your trust in him, you're given this, the privilege of being part of something that there is nothing better to be a part of. It's not obvious. That's not very obvious all the time now, but one day it will be. And you want to be a part of that. But I also want us to notice that it's good, but it's also, it's really full on. And it lays upon us an obligation to respond even more serious than Israel had. This is where Hebrews goes in the next verse, verse 25. Did you see it there? What's the upshot of all this? Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned, from, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? God's self-disclosure in Jesus Christ lays upon us a fearful burden of response. Just as a burden of obedience was laid upon Israel at Sinai. You know, given what we've been privileged to be a part of, we dare not refuse him. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we ensure that we do not refuse the one who speaks? Well, I think this is where we can be helped by returning to the moment we've already seen and witnessed 
And it seems to have been in the writer of Hebrews' mind here. The moment where Moses urges the people not to be afraid, but instead to learn the fear of God. One of the reasons we can refuse God, you see, is because he is fearful. Because being close to him is troubling, scary, threatening. People often talk about how good it is to be close to God. Well, yes, but it's really full on as well. At least it can be. The Israelites felt this in the fire and smoke and the repeated warnings not to touch the mountain. But it is no less true for us. God is not just a peer, a drinking buddy, an equal. He is holy. He is terrifying in his alienness. And coming into contact with this can be overwhelming. Of course, we don't, you know, we experience this in funny ways. It's not always totally obvious, but it's the reason that relationship with God is actually really full on. If we're engaged in it, really engaged in it, in in actively seeking God, in listening to his word, in trying to do what he says, it is inevitably actually confronting and difficult and challenging. God asks things of us that seem impossible, that seem frightening. Sometimes his word to us can sound like thunder in our ears and his presence like a fire that could consume us, that threatens our life. It can feel like life would be much easier and safer at a bit of a distance. Perhaps if we came to church a little less frequently, perhaps if we stopped going to Bible study, perhaps if we stopped taking some parts of the Bible so seriously. Yet, brothers and sisters, we must not refuse him like this. Instead of being afraid, because that's what those things are, and at one level they're fair enough, But instead of being afraid, we must learn to fear God rightly. Instead of backing away in terror and switching off because it's all a bit too much, we need to learn to stay with it, to stay close to the fire so that it grows and shapes us. And the key to this, just as we come to finish, the key to this is to not forget who the God is with whom we have to do and what he has done for us. In the intensity of his holiness, we must not forget his graciousness. You see how easy that is to do? It's just like Israel needed to remember that this fearsome God who came to them in fire and smoke, he was the one who brought them on eagles' wings to himself to be his treasured possession whose love for them had been put beyond dispute. He didn't want them to die. He wanted them to learn to live rightly. Remembering who God is, you see, is the key that can turn simple fear into the fear of the Lord. We cannot expect relationship with God to be comfortable and simple. Because it is God we're talking about. 
God. And his purpose is not just to give us a pat on the back and to tell us how wonderful we are. His purpose is to sanctify us, to reshape us, to fit us for his kingdom. But though this is going to be difficult, we don't need to be afraid. Because the God with whom we have to do is the God who in Jesus Christ has brought us on eagle's wings to himself to be his precious possession who has fought for us against all the armies of evil and death and conquered, whose love for us is beyond dispute. I've mentioned this before, but there is a great story in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe uh, that catches this. Um, if you know it, you know, just enjoy hearing it again. If you don't, it's a great story. Um, Lucy learns for the first time that Aslan is a lion. And she's been expecting Aslan to be great fun, and she freaks out. A lion? Is he safe? Mr. Beaver, good character. Oh, I just lost my bike. I'm going to speak loudly. Mrs. Beaver, uh, she says, Oh, my dear girl, he's not safe. He's not safe. But he's good. The goodness of God, that is what can stop us running from the things that we find hard about Christian faith and instead can enable us to stay close to the fire in the fear of the Lord. The goodness of God. We don't get... Grace doesn't mean we don't get to worry about God's holiness. He's still the Holy Lord, but he's the Holy Lord who is also the gracious Lord, who in Jesus Christ has come to us in such a way as to save us for himself for all eternity. That is not going to be easy, but it is wonderful. And that's why, finally, the fear of the Lord takes the shape it does in Hebrews of giving thanks. This is where we'll finish. Have a look at verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is the consuming fire. Thankfulness, you see, is what happens when you know that the holy God is also the gracious God. And that even though being with him can be overwhelming, What's happening is that he is fitting us for a kingdom that cannot be shaped. He is shaping us as his people. Thankfulness is what the fear of God looks like. So, brothers and sisters, can I just invite you? Do not refuse the one who is speaking. Instead of backing off from the troubles and challenges of Christian faith, whatever they are for you, from its intensity and demands, from this God who is so difficult. Let's remember Jesus Christ and stay close to that fire in the knowledge that it is for our good. And instead of being afraid, let us give thanks. Let me pray. Thanks for 
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.